It's trivia time. How did Verdi prevent Rigoletto from being banned by the censors in Venice? Stay tuned for the answer on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. If you said the answer was to change the role from a vain, cynical, womanizing king to a vain, cynical, and womanizing duke, you are correct. Rigoletto was based on Victor Hugo's play La Oie Samuse, literally, the king enjoys himself. However, since opera houses were under strict control of government censors, it was too controversial for a king to be portrayed as a serial seducer. On today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we have a historic recording from our Talking About Opera archives, featuring Guild lecturer Bridget Pellucci. In the spring of 1850, the Teatro La Fenice in Venice commissioned Giuseppe Verdi to write a new opera for the following season. Verdi considered several subjects. Then he wrote to Francesco Maria Piave, his librettist, and said he didn't care what the subject was, as long as it was passionate and beautiful. He went on to say, I might have a subject which, if the police permit it, would be one of the greatest creations of modern theater. The subject is grand, immense, and there's a character in it who is one of the greatest creations ever found in any theater in any country. The subject Verdi was considering was Le Roi s'amuse, The King Amuses Himself, a play by Victor Hugo, the 19th century French dramatist, poet, and novelist, renowned for such novels as Les Miserables and for his melodramas. Le Roi s'amuse was first performed in Paris in 1832. In the play, the 16th century king, Francis I, was portrayed as a libertine. The morning after the premiere, the Council of Ministers in Paris banned the play on the grounds that it offended public morals. The character Verdi mentioned in his letter was the hunchback Triboulet, a jester in the king's court. The police were the Austrian censors. Much of northern Italy was under Austrian domination at that time, and Austria was ruled by the Habsburg royal family. The composer was wary of the Austrian censors in Venice, not only because the play depicted a reigning monarch unfavorably, but because the censors had created problems six years earlier, when Verdi's Ernani premiered at La Fenice. From the time Verdi first suggested Hugo's Le Roi s'amuse to Piave, the composer urged him to get permission from the proper authorities. In a postscript to the letter I quoted earlier, Verdi wrote, As soon as you receive this letter, run throughout the city and find an influential person who can get permission to use Le Roi s'amuse. Don't sleep, get moving. Piave was cautious about the censors. He told Verdi he was concerned about the divided stage in the last act and about the sack containing a body and he said the opera would need an Italian title. Verdi answered that he could foresee no problem with either the divided stage or the sack, and he advised Piave to adhere to the French text. As for the title, if the composer couldn't use the original, the title would have to be La Maledizione, The Curse. Later that summer, in a letter to Carlo Marzari, the president or chief administrator of La Fenice, Piave said he had been assured in a conversation that the approval of Hugo's play wouldn't cause any difficulty. But Marzari answered that there were problems with the immorality of the story and the portrayal of the king. Then Verdi himself wrote to Marzari saying that the doubts expressed about the play put the composer in an embarrassing position and that Piave had assured him there would be no obstacle. Verdi went on to say that the most difficult part of his work on the new opera was done and there wasn't enough time to consider another subject. If Marzari couldn't obtain permission for the opera to be performed, and if he couldn't find a better soprano for the premiere, then, in Verdi's words, I believe it is in our common interest to cancel the contract. Over two months passed, still no letter authorizing the use of the play. 
Verdi warned Piave not to be induced into making changes that would alter the characters, the subject, or the dramatic situations. He also told Piave to feel free to change the bedchamber scene in which the jester's abducted daughter, who's terrified by the king's advances, locks the door to a room. The king triumphantly produces a key and laughs as he goes in to claim her. In fact, said Verdi, I think we would be well advised to find something better on our own. He insisted, however, that Piave leave the scene of Spadafucile's tavern intact and not delete the sack. This cannot matter to the police, he said. It's not their job to think about dramatic effects. On December 1st, a letter was delivered to La Fenice on behalf of the Austrian military governor of Venice, decreeing that performances of the opera were absolutely prohibited because of the repulsive immorality and obscene triviality of the plot. It was a terrible blow to Verdi, who said he nearly went out of his mind when he received the news. He placed full blame on Piave, who for months had assured him that the libretto had been approved. Verdi offered to put on a production of Stifelio, but La Fenice desperately needed the prestige of a new Verdi opera for its demanding audience. And Marzari and even the chief of police worked with Piave to revise the libretto and make it more palatable to the censors. Verdi was appalled by the changes and claimed that the new libretto lacked character and importance and that the most important scenes had become very cold. He didn't object to changing the names of the characters, but if the names had to be changed, then the locality must also be changed, perhaps to a duchy in another country. The duke or king had to be an absolute ruler. Otherwise, in Verdi's words, the old man's curse, so original and sublime in the play, becomes ridiculous because he is no longer a subject who speaks boldly to the king. Verdi also insisted that the duke be a libertine, explaining that otherwise there can be no justification for Triboulet's fear about his daughter leaving her hiding place. Without that, the drama is impossible. In the revised libretto, the sack was eliminated and Rigoletto was no longer a hunchback. With that sack removed, said Verdi, it is not likely that Triboulet would talk for half an hour to the corpse before a flash of lightning reveals it's his daughter. As for the undesirability of having a hunchback on stage, Verdi wrote, a hunchback who sings, why not? To me, there is something very, very beautiful in representing on stage this character who is outwardly so ugly and ridiculous, inwardly so impassioned and full of love. I chose the subject precisely because of these qualities. An agreement was drawn up in which the original aspects of the characters in the Hugo play were retained, but the action was moved from the royal court in France to a duchy in Italy. King Francis I became the Duke of Mantua. The censors insisted that Verdi omit the bedchamber scene, which the composer had never really liked, and that the Duke be lured to a rendezvous with Madalena by a ruse. In other words, the aristocrat wouldn't just be slumming. The censors left it to Verdi to decide about the sack. Piave proceeded to revise the libretto, the censors gave their approval, and Verdi completed the score on February 5th. At some point during this period, the jester's name was changed to Rigoletto, which also became the name of the opera. The world premiere took place on March 11th, 1851. Verdi was then 37 years old. One critic said he was overwhelmed by the novelty of the subject, the music, and the style. Another claimed that the music was of a truly new kind, and yet another praised Verdi for turning away from the grandiose ensembles, huge arias, and noisy finales of the past. Although many critics attacked the story as immoral and offensive, and others found the style puzzling, they agreed that Verdi had created something new, something different from his earlier works and Verdi himself considered this opera revolutionary in its form and style. Rigoletto was a breakthrough for Verdi, a turning away from the traditions of late 18th and early 19th century Italian opera, different in structural design from its predecessors. The aria was no longer the basic unit, and the orchestra assumed a more important role in the telling of the story than in Verdi's previous operas. When Verdi started to work on Rigoletto, he did something he had never done before and would never do again. 
he composed a sketch of the entire opera, much the way an artist sketches a painting. And that sketch, which is over 50 pages long, contains Verdi's basic musical ideas in abbreviated, undeveloped form, providing a musical summary of the work. As a result, Rigoletto is an organic whole, an opera in which the distinction between recitative and set pieces is blurred. In other words, the recitative is fully realized as music, and the opera evolves in one long, continuous line. Verdi's artistic maturity is revealed not only in the form and style of this opera, but also in the musical depiction of the characters, particularly Rigoletto. Creating characters had long been one of the composer's strengths, but in the last act of Luisa Miller and in Stifelio, the operas that immediately preceded Rigoletto, Verdi's characters were depicted with greater subtlety and sensitivity than in his earlier operas. And in Rigoletto, Verdi further refined the art of characterization and raised it to a new plane. The characters are psychologically valid human beings whose personalities and emotions are defined in the very shape of the music, orchestral as well as vocal. One critic at the world premiere reported that the orchestra speaks softly to your soul, weeps, and conveys passion. Of course, the qualities associated with Verdi from his earliest works were also in Rigoletto. The economy of expression, the fresh melodies, the vigor, the rhythmic propulsion, and the emotional directness. Rigoletto is set in 16th century Mantua. The first scene of Act I takes place in the ballroom of the Duke of Mantua's palace, where a party is in progress. The prelude sets up the tension of the drama. It begins with one note repeated in a rhythmic pattern that will form the basis of Rigoletto's line, Quel vecchio male diva mi, that old man cursed me. The trumpets and trombones initially state the rhythmic figure, and it's repeated again and again, ever louder, building steadily to a fortissimo chord in the full orchestra, soon followed by a series of two-note phrases in the violins that create a sense of pathos. A solo trumpet repeats the figure, then a solo trombone, and the prelude quickly comes to its tragic conclusion. The curtain rises, and an offstage banda is heard playing dance music for the partygoers, a brilliant, vivacious dance tune that immediately establishes the frivolous atmosphere of the Duke's court and provides a jarring contrast to the tragic prelude.
The curtain rises. The opera opens in mid-conversation. The Duke tells Borsa, one of his courtiers, that he wants his next conquest to be a beautiful young girl he has seen in church. She lives on a remote street, and an unknown man visits her every night. No sooner has he mentioned the young girl than he admires the wife of Count Ciprano. Borsa warns him not to let the Count hear him, but the Duke doesn't care who hears him. This conversation takes place over dance music, a technique that gives the entire opening scene momentum. As you'll hear, when the Duke says the word sposa, wife, meaning Soprano's wife, the accompaniment switches from the backstage banda to the orchestra in the pit. The transition is subtle, barely perceptible, leading to the Duke's first aria, Questa o quella. This one or that one, he says, they're all alike. The aria is in 6-8 time, the accompaniment simple, the melody buoyant. Verdi instructs the tenor to sing con eleganza, elegantly. The Duke is a charming, supremely self-confident, lecherous aristocrat with a devil-may-care attitude, and the music defines him. Questo quella per me pari sono a quant'altri intorno, intorno mi vedo, del mio cuore l'impero non c'è da meglio una che ad altra realtà. The last note of the Duke's aria becomes the first note of a minuet played by a string ensemble on stage. The Duke approaches Countess Ciprano, flatters her, and declares his love for her. In the meantime, the jester, Rigoletto, has entered inconspicuously, unnoticed, just part of the dissolute scene. As the Duke offers his arm to the Countess and leaves the room with her, Rigoletto utters his first line, What's on your head, Ciprano? Meaning, of course, the horns of cuckoldry. And the brilliant offstage dance music that opened the scene resumes. Ciprano simply gestures impatiently, and Rigoletto laughs at him as yet another dance tune begins. Marullo rushes in and tells his fellow courtiers he has news about Rigoletto. The jester has a mistress. The courtiers are incredulous, and Marullo jokes that the hunchback has transformed himself into Cupid. As the dance music continues, the duke returns, and Rigoletto suggests that the duke abduct Ciprano's wife. Ciprano is enraged. He wants vengeance. And he and his fellow courtiers, who are tired of being the targets of Rigoletto's insults, decide to get even with the buffoon by abducting his mistress. Their chorus of vengeance builds to a near frenzy when a voice is heard, the voice of Monterone, an older nobleman, demanding to see the duke. Monterone forces his way into the room and denounces the duke for seducing his daughter. We'll resume as Monterone says to the duke, My voice pursues you like thunder. The sound of the bass voice and the unyielding shape of the vocal line define Monterone as a man of power and dignity, the opposite of the revelers who surround him. Rigoletto assures the duke he'll handle this, and he proceeds to ridicule Monterone viciously. When Rigoletto says, Chio gli parli, I'll talk to him, Listen to the brief orchestral passage after that, a downward phrase in the unison orchestra, slithering, snake-like, repeated, then followed by taut, rising, jester-like figures. Rigoletto sings with mock solemnity, Voi conjuraste, you plotted against us, sir. And the violins and woodwinds express the jester's terrible sarcasm in a series of quick, derisive, descending figures. Rigoletto scoffs at the honor of Monterone's daughter, and his sarcasm is reinforced by trills in the vocal line. Then the orchestra rises full force as Monterone furiously turns on Rigoletto, then tells the Duke he will continue to disrupt his orgies. We begin with Monterone's entrance, 
followed by Rigoletto's verbal attack. When the Duke orders that Monterone be placed under arrest, Monterone damns him and Rigoletto. Then Monterone turns his anger against the jester and curses him for mocking a father's pain. Rigoletto is terrified. No one knows he has a daughter, not a mistress, and this father's curse horrifies him. He utters the word orrore again and again as the courtiers denounce Monterone, and the chorus builds, hushed at first, then louder and louder as the scene comes to a close. The second scene of Act One consists of a series of duets or scenes between two characters, between Rigoletto and Spadafucile, Rigoletto and Gilda, and Gilda and the Duke. This is all evidence of what Verdi called revolutionary in this opera. The duet or scene replaces the aria as the basic unit. There is an aria toward the end of the act, Gilda's Caronome, but even that is fused with the action, and the aria ends off stage. The scene opens with just five soft chords in the clarinets and bassoons that economically establish the dark, somber atmosphere of night. Rigoletto is on his way home, and he's brooding over Monterone's curse, saying to himself, Quel vecchio malediva me, that old man cursed me. His words are sung on the same pitch and in the same rhythmic pattern as the opening notes of the prelude. No sooner has Rigoletto uttered his line about the curse than Sparafucile appears from out of the darkness. He's a professional assassin, and he tells Rigoletto that he has noticed a young girl in his home. He assumes it's Rigoletto's mistress, and for a small fee he offers to get rid of any rival. Rigoletto dismisses him, but not until he has asked where he can find him. Sparafucile's answer, here, every night. We'll resume as Rigoletto mutters about the curse, and then a compelling melody in the muted cello and muted double bass introduces Sparafucile. The melody shifts from major to minor to major, giving him a mysterious quality. When Sparafucile addresses Rigoletto, the jester thinks he's a thief and says, I have nothing. As Rigoletto and Sparafucile talk, the orchestra continues to spin out the melody that introduced the assassin. The scene between the two men is brief and understated, and the tension emanates from that understatement. It's not at all the usual conspiratorial conversation, but one filled with innuendo. By the end of the scene, 
Each man is completing the other's melody, indicating that their thoughts are on the same wavelength. And yet their voices never join, except for one measure at the very end of the scene. When Spadafucile has left, Rigoletto says, Pari siamo, we're alike. I have my tongue, he has his dagger. This isn't an aria, but rather a stream of consciousness monologue, a highly flexible recitative that expresses every facet of Rigoletto's thoughts. He rages at his deformity, at being a buffoon, saying he has been denied the right of every human being, the right to weep. He must only laugh. He knows he's evil in the world, but blames it on the courtiers and says he is different at home. Rigoletto repeats the line about Monterone's curse, asking himself why it haunts him. Could it foretell something, he says. Ah, no, that's folly. His vocal line peaks on the word folia as he enters the courtyard of his home, and Gilda rushes out to embrace him. The musical change is instant. The tempo quickens, the orchestral melody is lively, with trills depicting Gilda's youth and delight. Rigoletto's vocal line is tender and lyrical as he greets his 16-year-old daughter. This is the first time we have witnessed the jester at home, and he is different here, very different. We begin at the end of the monologue as Rigoletto again ponders Monterone's curse. Tender father-daughter duet follows, the first of three between Rigoletto and Gilda. This one establishes the warmth of their relationship and his concern for her safety. Childlike, Gilda asks Rigoletto's name. He refuses to tell her, warning her never to leave the house. She says she leaves only to go to church, then asks him to talk about her late mother. In a deeply expressive melody, Rigoletto tells Gilda that her mother loved him despite his deformity and poverty. And now that she has died, his daughter is all that is left to him. Gilda responds compassionately, then asks his name again. The name Father is enough, he says. She mentions that she's been in Mantua for three months and has seen nothing. Rigoletto again forbids her to leave the house except to go to church. He's terrified that his daughter will be abducted and warns her nurse, Giovanna, never to let anyone into the house. Suddenly, he hears a noise outside, and as he runs out to investigate, the duke slips into the courtyard, tosses a purse at Giovanna, and hides. Rigoletto returns moments later, and the duke overhears him address Gilda as daughter, so the duke now knows about the father-daughter relationship. When Rigoletto leaves, Gilda tells Giovanna she feels guilty for not having told her father about the handsome young man who follows them from church. Giovanna thinks he must be a fine gentleman, but Gilda hopes he's poor because she would love him even more. The Duke motions to Giovanna to leave, and he surprises Gilda. He tells her he's a poor student. His name is Gualtier Malde, and he loves her passionately. His declaration of love is ardent, yet light-hearted, almost conventional, which is totally appropriate. The Duke has had plenty of practice. During the course of their duet, Gilda admits she loves him. Giovanna interrupts to say she hears noises outside. She doesn't realize that the courtiers are arriving to abduct Gilda, and neither does the Duke. After a brief and lively farewell, he leaves. 
Gilda, now alone, repeats his name to herself, leading to her famous aria, Caro Nome, an aria so familiar that we tend to overlook how perceptive a portrait it paints of this particular character at this moment in time. She's innocent and dreamy, a young girl who has never been out of the house except for church, and now for the first time she's aware of her own sexuality. Two flutes introduce the melody, and the very sound of flutes conveys innocence. The introduction is marked dolcissimo, to be played very sweetly. Caro nome, dear name that makes my heart beat quickly for the first time, she sings. The vocal line has a rest between each beat. In other words, it's not caro nome che il mio cor, but rather caro nome che il mio cor. The rests give the melody a breathless quality, and a high violin ornament delicately reinforces her sense of wonder. This is Gilda, young, graceful, dreamy, and innocent. Gilda at the moment of first love. In the concluding section of the aria, as Gilda starts to go toward the house, she repeats Gualtier Maldei, while the strings and woodwinds play the melody of the aria off-beat. Rigoletto returns unexpectedly. He questions why the courtiers are there, and they convince him they're abducting the wife of Count Ciprano, who lives across the street. Rigoletto offers to help, and since the courtiers are all wearing masks, he wants one for himself. But instead of a mask, the courtiers dupe him into wearing a blindfold, and Rigoletto ends up holding a ladder against the wall of his own house. The courtiers climb the ladder and abduct Gilda. As they carry her off, her cry for help is heard in the distance, and the courtiers shout, Vittoria, victory. Rigoletto hears none of this. He wonders what's taking so long, then realizes he's blindfolded. He tears off the blindfold, rushes into the house to look for Gilda, and not finding her, he cries out, Ah, la maledizione, as the curtain falls. Act two is set in the Duke's apartments. The Duke is highly agitated when he enters, saying, Ella mi furapita, someone abducted her. Apparently, he returned to Rigoletto's house, found no one there, and assumes that someone has abducted Gilda. In his aria, Parmi Veder, he says he seems to see her tears when she was in danger and called out for her gualtier. The melody is sweet and tender and charming, as the Duke is always charming. He seems capable of genuine affection here, because Verdi lavished a beautiful melody on him. 
and the composer almost always gave his characters some redeeming quality. But Verdi did say that all the sudden changes in fortune are caused by the light-hearted, libertine character of the Duke. To me, the Duke seems self-indulgent here, and as we'll soon find out, there's a duchess in his life. We never see her, and apparently he rarely does. And yet this aria does show that the Duke is capable of affection, temporarily. Courtiers enter and report they've abducted Rioletto's mistress. Their unison chorus is typical Verdi, virile and energetic. The Duke is amused at first, then delighted when he realizes that the girl is Gilda. When the courtiers reveal they've brought her to the palace, the Duke sings a cabaletta, the only solo cabaletta in an opera that breaks away from traditional forms. This cabaletta is often omitted on recordings and in performance. Possente amor mi chiama, says the Duke. A powerful love calls me. I'd give my scepter to console that heart. She'll know who I am. As soon as the Duke leaves the room, Rigoletto enters. His entrance music is a prime example of Verdi's extraordinary gift for characterization. The little tune introduced by the orchestra is basically that of a jester, with a skipping quality about it. But it's in a minor key, and the tempo is slow. Marullo says, poor Rigoletto. Rigoletto sings the tune on Lara, Lara. He's trying to seem indifferent as he searches for Gilda. When the courtiers greet him, Rigoletto mutters, they're all in on it. As we listen to his entrance, notice that the melody has the shape and rhythmic pattern of Jester's music, but the slow tempo and minor tonality reveal a broken-hearted clown. Rigoletto continues to search until a page enters and asks for the Duke. The Duchess wants to speak to him. The courtiers try to silence the page, and when Rigoletto realizes that Gilda is with the Duke, the courtiers tell him to look elsewhere for his lover. The jester reveals that Gilda is his daughter. The courtiers are shocked, and yet they bar his way when he runs toward the door to the Duke's bedchamber. Rigoletto spews out his fury in the aria, Cortigiani. This aria is the emotional heart of the opera, and it's one of the greatest of the many arias Verdi composed for the baritone voice. Rigoletto says, Cortigiani, courtiers, you damned vile race of men. For what price have you sold what is precious to me? Gold is all you care about. To me, my daughter is a priceless treasure. His fury is embodied in the melody he sings, not a smooth, expansive phrase, but a descending, broken vocal line that sounds like a series of gasps, cortigiani, virazza, dannata. And as he sings, a churning figure in the strings is repeated over and over again. The sheer rhythmic energy of the orchestral accompaniment reinforces his fierce accusations. The vocal line becomes lyrical for little more than a measure when he says that his daughter is a priceless treasure. This aria is a prime example of Verdi's emotional directness of his emotional conviction and profound humanity. 
all the pain, the hurt, the anger, the vulnerability, the desperation, the love for Gilda, all this is in the very shape and sound of the music and in Verdi's use of the upper range of the baritone voice. He mentions his daughter. He rushes toward the door. He's reduced to tears. No sooner has Rigoletto ended his aria with a plea for pity than Gilda rushes into the room. Rigoletto dismisses the courtiers and urges his daughter to tell him what happened. In an arioso that launches their duet, Gilda sings, Tutte le feste, every holy day while I was praying in church, a handsome young man kept looking at me. The melody is introduced by the oboe, a more mature and sensual instrument than the flute that preceded Caronome. Caronome was fantasy. This is reality. The melody is graceful and feminine, she's still Gilda, but the vocal line is sustained rather than breathless. She's no longer a child. As she continues, she tells her father about the Duke's visit to their home, and the music is initially calm, almost subdued. But when she speaks of the cruel abduction, her vocal line verges on hysteria. Rigoletto's initial reaction is one of anger and despair. Then he turns to Gilda, and there follows a father-daughter duet of great beauty and sensitivity. Piangi, says Rigoletto. Cry, cry, little girl. The vocal line is sustained and legato, exuding strength and compassion. The accompaniment is also sustained with horns, bassoons, and clarinets creating a masculine sound. Gilda's answer is rather disjointed, like a series of sighs, and high violins seem to whimper as she says, Father, you're a consoling angel. When she repeats those words, her sobs find their way into the very melody she sings. Rigoletto continues to give her emotional and musical support with his sustained melody. Again, the emotions are in the very shape of the music, 
and yet the melodies are glorious in and of themselves, without words. We begin as Rigoletto urges Gilda to cry. The melody sobs. Rigoletto says they'll move away, and Gilda agrees. Then Monterone is led through the room by guards who are taking him to prison for having insulted the Duke. Rigoletto swears vengeance for them both in a melody of enormous vigor and rhythmic energy. Gilda begs her father to forgive the Duke rather than seek vengeance. Her vocal line is the same as Rigoletto's because the subject is the same, but it's higher, more desperate. But Rigoletto is unyielding. He vows to destroy the Duke, and the act ends with a strong reprise of the vengeance melody in the trumpets. Act three is set on the deserted banks of the Mincho River on the outskirts of Mantua. The stage is divided. To one side is a dilapidated inn where Spadafucile conducts his business. His sister, Maddalena, lures men to the inn, and he takes care of the rest. The role of Maddalena is written for the mezzo voice, which adds to the character's earthy quality vis-a-vis -vis Gilda. The play reveals that Gilda had been the Duke's lover for the past month, and that the jester and Spadafucile arranged a supposedly chance encounter between the Duke and Maddalena, and the Duke was instantly attracted to her. The orchestral introduction is somber and brief, only nine measures long, and the accompaniment is sparing as Rigoletto and Gilda converse outside the inn. He has brought his daughter to this place to witness the Duke's infidelity. Gilda doesn't know that her father has hired Spadafucile to kill the Duke. When Rigoletto asks if she still loves the Duke, she insists she does, and she's sure that he adores her. Rigoletto tells his daughter to look through an opening in the wall of the tavern, and they see the Duke enter, disguised as an officer. When Spadafucile asks what he wants, the Duke answers, Tua sorella e del vino, your sister and some wine. Spadafucile leaves the room, and the Duke sings one of the most famous arias ever written, La donna mobile, woman is fickle, like a feather in the wind. Ironic words given the character of the Duke. The tune is catchy, with a certain swagger to it. It's charming, but not as elegant as his other arias. 
After all, he's in disguise, meeting a woman in a very sordid place, and the aria captures the duke at his most libertine. Verdi instructs the tenor to sing it with brio. La donna era fiera, qual più malveto, muta d'aceto, ed in pensiero, sempre un amabile, leggiadro viso, After the aria, Spadafucile returns with some wine and with Maddalena, who's dressed as a gypsy. The tempo speeds up to an allegro as the duke embraces her, telling her that he saw her one day and has adored her ever since. But she laughs and teases, calling him a real libertine. The duke even proposes, just like Mozart's Don Giovanni. And Maddalena continues to tease, pretending to elude him. When Gilda sees what's going on, she's shocked and deeply hurt. Then the tempo slows down to an andante, and the famous quartet begins. The quartet is a marvel, admired by many composers, from Verdi's contemporaries to Stravinsky. The Duke and Maddalena are inside the tavern. Gilda and Rigoletto are observing them from the outside. Each of the four characters has a distinct personality and state of mind, and each has a distinctive melody depicting that particular character at this point in time. The differing emotions are expressed with absolute clarity, and yet all four melodies are intertwined into a harmonious whole. The Duke sings first, Bella figlia dell'amore, beautiful daughter of love, he says. The melody combines playfulness and sensuality with a certain aristocratic air. He's all nobleman here, instead of the man who tried to rush Maddalena when she came into the room. He knows full well that this approach will impress a woman who goes about her business in this squalid place. By the way, to me, the plink, plink, plink of the woodwinds between each phrase suggests that the Duke is chuckling to himself. Bella figlia dell'amore, schiavo son dei Maddalena says his little game amuses her. Her vocal line is giddy, quick staccato sixteenth notes running up and down the musical staff, conveying not only her amusement, but also the fact that she's charmed by this fellow. She's heard plenty of lines from plenty of men, but this one's different. Of course, neither she nor her brother knows that this is the Duke of Mantua. On the first beat after Maddalena's musical laughter, Gilda says, A così parlar d'amor. Ah, that's the way that infamous man spoke to me about love. And her vocal line weeps. Rigoletto completes the quartet. His vocal line is stern, not at all the warm and lyrical kind of melody we're accustomed to hearing from him when he's with his daughter. Pachi, he says, silence. Tears won't do any good. I will strike him down. The vocal line is declamatory, somber and static, just as the person of Rigoletto is grim and immovable in his determination to get rid of the duke. Then the duke repeats, Bella figlia dell'amore, and this time Gilda expresses her anguish in a series of high descending phrases, like sighs, repeated ever higher. Rigoletto reiterates that the duke has betrayed her, and Maddalena's musical laughter continues. Then Gilda's sobs are juxtaposed with Maddalena's giggles, with each of them singing two-note phrases of sixteenth notes. We resume the quartet as the Duke completes the opening passage, and I'll point out each of the other characters.
Maddalena. Gilda. Rigoletto. Sobs and laughter are juxtaposed. After the quartet, the orchestra is silent as Rigoletto tells Gilda to go home, dress in boy's clothing, and go immediately to Verona, where he'll join her the next day. She leaves, and a few soft chords accompany Rigoletto as he pays Sparafucile half his fee for the assassination. The other half is due on delivery of the body. Sparafucile asks the jester the name of the victim, and as we'll hear, Rigoletto answers, His name is crime, I am punishment. Punizione son io. A piccolo and flute depict lightning in the distance. This opera was written at the height of Romanticism, and the link between man and nature was typical of the time. Here, an actual storm reflects the emotional one. When the Duke approaches Maddalena, a solo clarinet recalls the first line of the quartet, and as they speak, there's more lightning in the piccolo and flute. The low strings thunder, and backstage voices hum, imitating the wind. The sounds of the storm are sporadic and distant. Notice the eerie stillness of the scene. The Duke goes upstairs to his bedroom and begins to sing La Donna Mobile again. As he becomes drowsy, the aria is gradually reduced to a few fragments, and then he stops singing in the middle of a word. Maddalena realizes he has fallen asleep and tells her brother she likes this young man. In the meantime, Gilda returns, dressed in boy's clothing. She's concerned about the Duke, and she overhears Maddalena beg her brother to spare the stranger's life. He's an Apollo, says Maddalena, and she loves him. When Spadafucile refuses, Maddalena urges him to kill the old man instead. After all, Spadafucile has already collected half the fee. Gilda is appalled. Spadafucile refuses, saying to his sister, Do you think I'm a thief? The storm gathers momentum, and a trio ensues as Sparafucile agrees to substitute the next person who comes to the door, if someone arrives before the old man returns. Gilda decides to sacrifice her life for the Duke, even though he has betrayed her. She knocks at the door and says she's a beggar. Then, as we'll hear, the trio becomes more vigorous, the storm more powerful. 
Gilda's vocal line is high and distraught, while Spadafucile and Maddalena converse in a heavily accented, rhythmically driven melody. The two of them agree to kill the stranger, and Gilda asks her father to forgive her for saving the life of the man she loves. She knocks again. Armed with a dagger, Spadafucile hides, and as Maddalena opens the door, Gilda asks God to forgive her murderers. The storm rages violently as she enters the inn, and Spadafucile stabs her. <laughs> Rigoletto returns to pay Spadafucile the balance of his fee and to claim the sack containing the Duke's body. The clock strikes midnight and Spadafucile arrives. He offers to dump the sack into the river, but Rigoletto wants that pleasure for himself. Spadafucile leaves immediately. Rigoletto, who has always thought of himself as deformed and demeaned, now says, Look at me, world. Here's a buffoon and here's a powerful man and he's at my feet. The jester no longer feels like a joke among men, and evil as his vengeance is, one can only feel compassion for him. We'll resume, as Rigoletto says, the waves are his coffin, a sack his shroud, into the waves, alonda, and he repeats alonda as he is about to dump the sack into the river. Then listen to what he hears. Si alonda lui sepolcro, Rigoletto thinks he's hallucinating. It's a moment of unbearable irony. The hunchback, finally victorious, shattered by that flippant little tune sung in the distance. He tears open the sack, and a flash of lightning reveals his daughter's body. Horrified, Rigoletto tries to get help, but the inn is deserted. Gilda revives, and weak as she is, she tells him that she deceived him, that she loved the Duke too much and is now dying for him. Rigoletto realizes she is the victim of his own desire for vengeance. As he tries to comfort her, she asks him to forgive her, and then she sings, Lassu in cielo, up there in heaven near my mother, I'll pray for you. Her vocal line is high and sweet and very fragile. Four violins, two violas, and a solo flute create an otherworldly atmosphere. In a deeply expressive melody, Rigoletto begs her not to die.
Gilda again sings La Suincelo, and when she repeats these words, the phrase slips down a half tone. Rigoletto pleads with her not to leave him, and then, realizing she has died, he cries out her name. Alone in his grief, he recalls the curse, Ah, la maledizione, and the orchestra rushes downward as the curtain falls. lecturer Bridget Pellucci discussing Rigoletto. The Metropolitan Opera's new production is on stage now, featuring baritone Quinn Kelsey as Rigoletto, tenor Piotr Bachawa as the Duke, and soprano Rosa Feola as Gilda. If you aren't in New York, you can catch this production in cinemas through the upcoming Live in HD broadcast on January 29, 2022. For more information, visit metopera.org. Be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Opera News on your favorite social media platforms to keep up with all things opera. I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.